Broadway Bullet, Volume 805, Build It and They Will Come, for September 12th, 2017. Subscribe to the podcast for free at iTunes or at broadwaybullet.com, and don't miss a single episode. In this episode, James Barber talks about the demands of his long stint as the 15th Phantom in Phantom of the Opera and the importance of actors to develop their business acumen. The Ensemble Studio Theatre discusses their long-running and extremely popular marathon of one-act plays. The Lazur Brothers discuss the excitement and perils of musical theatre development. While discussing their show in progress, we are Cairo, and they let us hear some songs from their demo recording. So strap in. Welcome to Broadway Bullet. This is Michael Gilbo, and we got a great episode, and I've called it Build It and They Will Come. This really could be almost any episode, but this episode we really got three totally different types of people, organizations that realize they have to be producers. And uh, it's something that we teach at the school, uh, University of Providence, where I had the theater and business arts program, that you really do have to be your own business as an entrepreneur. And so you're going to hear about a lot of different ways from... James Barber as big Broadway star, Phantom of the Opera, but how he had has to create his own way and how he's hoping to help others. We've got the Ensemble Studio Theater, who even as an organization, they're massive, and they create opportunities both for themselves to produce and for playwrights, finding a unique junction there. And then we have the Lazur Brothers, who are aspiring musical theater compo- composers, and uh, doing well, but working hard to make the next thing happen. So um, if nothing else, take that from that at every level, it doesn't stop. You got to keep working and you got to keep building for the next step. And you get to hear some pretty cool stuff in the meantime. Special thanks to our location sponsor. Thanks to the Dramatist Guild Fund for welcoming us to their space for today's podcast. Providing the music hall at DGF for writers to use for free is one of the many ways the Dramatist Guild Fund supports writers. I encourage you to find out more about DGF by visiting their website at www.dgffund.org or connecting with them on Twitter at DGFund. Also, very special thanks to our school, University of Providence, and the School of Theater and Business Arts uh, for sponsoring the travel for us to do this. We teach you the art of being an artist and the business of being an artist. More at uprovidence.edu, or information is also at broadwaybullet.com. 
Up close. I am sitting with the latest and greatest phantom <laughs> and friend, James Barber, who hey, stopped buddy. by in the middle of his grueling schedule singing Phantom eight nights a week at yeah. the Majestic. And how you doing? I'm good. You know, it's I gotta good to say, see I, you, man. Yeah. Walk I, with me. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was just actually showing that to my sister, Matt, before we... Mm-hmm. <laughs> we had a blast with that. And, um, but, you know, I had never, ever seen Phantom. Yeah. And I will admit, I was snobby about it. <laughs> yeah. Thought I'd hate it. Wouldn't go see it, but I'm like, ah, yeah, I, I bet I'll enjoy watching, you know, if my friend play the Phantom. That has to be a surreal experience. But you know what? I mean, it's still probably not going to be my favorite show ever, but I really enjoyed it. I yeah. enjoyed it a lot, and there's definitely a reason. It's run for like it's almost 30 years now. Yeah, it's a blockbuster. <laughs> it's, an, it's, an interesting, uh, it's an interesting place to be because it has run for so long. And, you know, when you look at shows that have sustained over time, the Wicked's and the Jersey Boys, which just closed, and those kind of shows, it, they build this sort of following, you know? Keep talking. Hello, hello, hello. Testing one, two. Yeah. Three. Did you not get me? I think yeah. I, I, yeah, I think I think you put on the wrong clip. I got the right one on now. Oh. So. You got to start over again. Yeah. Let's see. Well, or we can just continue right here. So. Yeah. Because it got me fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's a reason that this show has run for 30 years. Yeah, <laughs> and I, what I was saying, even when we we met outside and we were walking in, is that it's an interesting anomaly because you have these shows that have run so long. The Wicked's, the Jersey Boys, which just unfortunately closed a little while ago, you know, they, they build this following, which is almost insurmountable worldwide. You know, no matter where you go, I actually suggested to the merchandising people with Phantom. I said, you know what you should come up with? You should come up with playing cards, mm-hmm. like trading cards, like baseball cards, yeah. because so many people, like you know, I think I'm the 14th or 15th Phantom. You know, people collect that kind of thing. Yeah, that's it. After 30 years, there's only been that many yeah. Phantoms. Wow. Yeah. Because they stay for you know period of, you know a period of time, then they'll leave. They'll come back. Howard McGill on the longest yeah. running, he'll you know come for a year and then go back and then come back. Yeah, Howard. You know Howard from what everybody says is the you know has been the longest running fan. He did it most performances, not consecutively, but he would come in for a year, go leave, and then come back for two years, leave. You know, awesome guy. You know when I, when I took over the role, everybody's texting me. He's like, you know, you're gonna don the mask. Howard's like texting me. He's like, hey, you know, if you need any have any questions, and it's it's kind of it's a unique thing when Norm Lewis was doing it, it was my predecessor, I came in and he had some ice packs on his knees. And I'm like, really, dude? He goes, it's the most physically demanding thing you'll ever do. And I was like, ah, oh, come on. <laughs> and it's one of the most physically demanding things I've ever done. So not just vocally demanding, but really physically. Not just vocal. Well, it's, it's, that also is physically demanding. Yeah, you know, okay, it's a yeah. tenor role, yeah. right? So, uh, and it's very specific. It's very, very specific. It, everything comes from the music is what we're taught. Um, uh, you know, Andrew's music is, you know, it's not called Phantom of the Musical, it's Phantom of the Opera. And in opera, the music is the overriding controlling factor. Um, so it is, it is physically demanding because of the vocal stamina that you need. And also, I'm, I think I'm the first Phantom, I think, since Mark Jacoby, who had small kids. Everybody else, their kids were either grown or they didn't have kids. So, you know, I get, I get home at 1 o'clock in the morning, and then, you know, 6 o'clock, Dad, Mom said not to wake you, but we're going to go to school. Right. <laughs> so, you know, it's trying to get as much sleep as possible. Um, but it's also, yeah, it's, you know, fitting in tight spaces. I think I, I, I started to count it. There must be, like, I do 1,000 to 1,200 stairs and ladders per show. 
yeah. Um, so you know, oh, yeah. it takes even a toll. Backstage, I can imagine. Yeah. yeah. Well, even the stuff we don't see on stage, yeah. but the backstage getting there. Most of what you know, you you don't see anything other yeah. than uh, the mass coming down the masquerade stairs. Yeah. Everything else is hidden. You know, you don't see the behind the scenes okay. other show that's going on. <laughs> so, I mean. Was this a? I mean, was this a dream for you to, to do this role? Was this something you wanted to do? Well, we talked about that. It's funny because yeah. when, when oh, you're like I'm trying to be all disingenuous now. Come on, man! <laughs> Come on, man! We go back too far, my brother. Um, you know, I, when I was doing Beauty and the Beast, there's so much makeup in Beauty and the Beast, and uh, I thought, oh man, because everybody kept saying you should do Phantom, you should do Phantom, you should do Phantom. I'm like, I don't want to put that ball cap on my head. I don't want to glue that prosthetic rubber to my face. Uh, and then it came around my way, and I was like, yeah, absolutely, I wanted to do it. Um, you know, it's the iconic role. Um, Norm, Norm and I were also talking about this. Is You know, I can say, you know, look, I've done Assassins for Stephen Sondheim, yeah. and I've, you know, worked with these people and, you know, worked with John Caird, and, and then, um, you know, I played the Phantom. You played the Phantom? <laughs> you know, because it's known worldwide. You can go anywhere in the world, mm -hmm. and someone will know the Phantom of the Opera. But if I say Stephen Sondheim's Assassins, they'll be what? <laughs> you know, Beauty and the Beast. Oh, I have Beauty and the Beast, the movie. You know, mm -hmm. it's it's like that. You know, Phantom is is it's iconic. So uh, it was kind of a you know, it's like a feather in the cap. You know, <laughs> bucket list little item. So, um, are you still doing your your concerts too? In, in Absolutely, yeah. Days? As a matter of fact, I leave tomorrow. Friday. I don't know when this is going to air, but I go do the Playbill cruise. This is going to be just sometime. Like I collect them up now for. Oh, for later. Like for later I, I come here for yes. a mass week of like frantically talking to people, and then I oh, release awesome. them out for a few yeah. months. So. so yeah, I pro I'm producing uh, a lot of concerts while I was doing Phantom, and while I'm doing Phantom, I uh, is that a Hamilton tattoo that you have on your arm? It is. Are you serious? I'm serious. Wow, man, you're dedicated. I've gotten actually quite tatted up since. Yeah, I can see that. That's <laughs> your that's your Facebook thing. Right there. Um. Uh, what I did was I, you know, because I produce and create concerts, and I have a production company in LA, and we've got a lot going on. I've got, uh, I'll, I'll tell you about the show that we're creating in a second. Um, but I've got two films that are in development. I'm doing a documentary on an on a entrepreneur named Ted McGrath, awesome guy. Um, but I started to produce these concerts called Phantom Sings, and I chose a different composer, and it's the cast of Phantom Sings, Andrew Lloyd Webber, the cast of Phantom Sings, Stephen Sondheim, the cast of Phantom Sings, Frank Wildhorn. Um, and we did them all for Broadway Cares, and they're mm -hmm. massive sellouts. And uh, so, yeah, I, I still do concerts, I do holiday concerts. I, you know, I'm going, uh, I'm going to France to do a concert for Playbill and one of the Playbill cruises. And uh, yeah, so I do a lot of that stuff. And and it, when I when I think about, you know, now that you're, mm -hmm. you know, we met when you weren't involved with the educational portion. Yeah. There's a big part of me that when I look at young performers, any artist that's coming in. Uh, you know, we're asked all the time, how do you do this? How do you get here? How do you do that? And there's a statistic that I use specifically for actors and actors' equity. That it's on Actors' Equity website, I think it was 2015. 69% of all members of Actors' Equity make $15,000 a year or less. The top 91% make $50,000 a year or less. There's 38,000 roughly after taxes. Mm -hmm. And to live in Manhattan, it, that's a daunting prospect. And, you know, for me, the idea of saying, you know, you need to skill up because at a certain point, everybody's got game. Mm -hmm. Everybody can sing. Everybody can act. Everybody can move and dance. 
at a certain level. So what is going to set you apart and allow you to sustain through that law of attrition where people are dropping off? A lot of people, most people leave because they don't have enough money to sustain themselves. They get a job that's a part-time job and it becomes a full-time job. And then they're like, okay, well, you know, I'm 30 now and I haven't really reached my goal and they give up. But what if you could keep pushing through to your goal and know that you'll have that financial stability while you're doing it? And one of the key components is creating. Action creates traction. And if these young artists or any artist of any age goes, okay, I'm going to go and create something. Like when we did Walk With Me, you know, you heard that tune. You're like, we should, and we did it, right? Creating things allows the artist to be seen in a different light where there are a lot of artists that are just sitting waiting for lightning to strike. Oh, I went to be discovered. I wait for this. I'm going to go to this audition. Well, what can you do to create? Go out and do a concert. Go out and do, you know, shoot a short film. You can, man, you can shoot a film on an iPhone. It's 1080 DPI. You know, it doesn't cost you anything. And sit and edit an iMovie, which comes with your iPhone. So that's my passion and that's the passion that you know we were talking about with with what you're doing yeah and that's and that's yeah. absolutely what a, i want to really change the paradigm of what a theater absolutely um program is yeah. too many programs i think to ask you know the artist to specialize right away yeah you got to decide right now if you're going to be you know and i'm like they're 18 i'm like yeah. they've got a lot of discovering to do tons of discovery <laughs> you know? to do you know i mean I, no no question at some point you need to kind of focus in and decide but i don't think it's 18 necessarily no look you know look <laughs> life life has massive amounts of lessons yeah. and so you know I, I i always knew that i wanted to do something it's my 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 path was about um i i wanted to become so many different things when i was a kid you know archaeologist astronomer you know oceanographer and i realized that as an actor i could actually become all those things learn about them and then move on to something else and then as I got into the business and I looked at the control that artists give up mentally to that pr- the producer, the casting director, well, if only they would like me, if only I could get the, well, no, 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 no. They want you to get the job. They want their show, they're looking for the person. They're looking for that filmmaker. They're looking for that next composer. But unless you go and actually take the bull by the horns, I was gonna say something else, but the bull by the horns, <laughs> you know. It's internet, you could have I know, it. man. <laughs> you know, man, I'm good. You have to be able to adapt, and you know, I'm a, I produce. You know, I produce and I create, and I, I consider myself. Although I'm, I'm a performer, I consider myself an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. You know, actorpreneur. You know, mm-hmm. producerpreneur. And so I, you know, I created YourStarPower.com, which is it's going to be the Your Star Power Academy plus. Um, the book that I'm writing is called Thriving Artist, rather than Starving Artist. It says Starving mm-hmm. Artist, and Starving's crossed out. Yeah. It says Thriving Artist. Because it's not taught. What you're about to do and you're, what you're about to launch is not taught. It's not about, here's your picture and resume. This is how you hold a camera. This is how you sing. It's, you know, how do you survive yeah. in undoubtedly one of the most difficult professions to make a living? And we're not just talking actors. We're talking mm-hmm. filmmakers. We're yeah. talking singers. We're talking composers. We're talking, you know, photographers. And, uh, you know, the artists really change the world. I truly believe that. And, you know, when, when things are bad and things are dead, look, I, I always heard after World War II, the first things they rebuilt were the theaters. You know, we need the artists to be able to buoy up society and to show them that there are, there are things out there that we can, we can vest our, our spiritual being into. So 
I'm all about that. You can go to jamesbarber.com, sign up for the newsletter, and you'll get all the info. All right. And now, go sing to the people for the music sing of the night. for me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so good to see you, That's my friend. the point of no return. I'm going to come out to Montana. You know, my sister lives out there. Yeah. Where, 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 where does she live? Bozeman. She lives in Bozeman. That's only two and a half hours away from yeah. where we are. And I love it. I'd love to bring you out and do a workshop. Yeah, absolutely. Students. I'm up for it. You know, let me come out. I'll come. I'll come out and talk to the students, do some workshops. All Slam right. them. All right, guys. <laughs> I'm excited. Thank you. Yep. James Barber has so much other great advice for actors, theater artists, pretty much anyone involved in the entertainment business in general. So to find out a lot more, uh, we have his unedited interview up at broadwaybullet.com under volume 805. And we do that for almost every single interview. There is, if you're looking to find out more from anybody on this show or the others, we have the unedited information from the interview. So go check that out. It's a great source of, uh, even deeper info. In the best of company. Ensemble Studio Theater is currently putting on their 36th marathon of one-act plays. And uh, while this interview is probably posting after that is over, I still wanted to talk about the festival because they do it uh, biannually. And we've got some amazing playwrights that are involved with it. Uh, to talk about the festival, their work, and a discussion about the state of playwriting and development in general. So uh, I'd like to introduce uh, Carrie Gitter. Hi. Hi. Great to be here. And um, Emily Chaddock-Weiss. Hello. <laughs> and we got Maggie Diaz-Bofield. Hello. Hello. How you doing? Good. Thanks. Glad to be here. So first, tell us about your guys' involvement with what is Ensemble Studio Theater, what is this festival... Uh, why are you guys involved? <laughs> um, so the Ensemble Studio Theater, EST as people call it, um, it develops new work and has been doing it for over 30 years. Um, this marathon is in its 36th season. And um, EST is really famous for this marathon. It's um, a bunch of one-act plays. This year it's five plays, I think, in each series. There's A, B, and C. And in addition to uh, short plays, EST has Youngblood, which is a group for emerging playwrights under 30, and then a whole slew of uh, members who are actors, members who are directors, and members who are uh, playwrights over 30. Um, so they... <laughs> I'm clearing my throat a lot. <laughs> and uh, they really focus on developing... Um, you know, a play from the reading stage, sometimes to the production, but really giving, I think, the majority of love to um, the development versus giving it a, you know, trillion-dollar production. And some of the plays go on to have, you know, Broadway productions or what other lives, um, but I think EST is really known for developing new voices at the, at the ground level. And my understanding of the marathon is that when it began in 77, there weren't really a lot of one-act festivals around, and the forum was sort of not respected or regarded highly. And Kurt Dempster, who founded EST, um, had this idea to sort of give new life to the one-act. And so the festival, I guess, kind of inaugurated the whole trend in the last few decades of short play festivals. So that's an interesting piece of history about it. So now, is this something that the playwrights involved are members, or was this like an open submission? How, did, how does this festival work for participation? 
My first marathon was a few years ago, and I wasn't a member. Mm -hmm. And a friend of mine told me to submit, and I, it was the first thing I actually ever submitted, <laughs> ever. And uh, I was shocked when I got in. And uh, since then, I've become a member and had stuff produced on the main stage, I guess you could <laughs> call it. But it's, it's an opportunity for any member to submit, but they accept submissions from the outside. And that's really rare. Like, Ensemble Studio Theater is very rare in how incredibly open and generous they are. They fully support their membership, but they stay open to new voices. They're continually wanting to grow. And it's a blind submission process. Um, this year, for instance, they had 728 submissions. Yeah. And out of those, they end up choosing 15. Did you know that? No. Yeah. I feel really good now. Me too. <laughs> Me too. But, um, yeah. So. Have you ever sat on the end reading 728 submissions? Do some of you participate in that? That's like crazy, isn't it? I have. It's a lot of <laughs> plays to read. Yeah, I've done that. And you realize then also how, you know, um, subjective it is on one level. Yeah. But it's not surprising that blind submission is also something that's kind of rare. Mm -hmm. Like if the same playwright sort of keep coming up, it's like, okay. Yeah. Um, it's, and they take it very seriously. I was an intern at EST in 2008 when I was in college and sat in on the marathon selection committee. And every week they were reading dozens of plays from this open submission uh, pool and having like really rigorous discussions about them. Um, and they're very painstaking in how they do it and they really respect playwrights and their work. Great. So now that you've gotten selected and you're in it, what is the process? Uh, is the, are these full mountings? Are these readings? They're full mountings. I see somebody nodding, which is audio. So <laughs> You can't see my nod. Um, it is a full production. So I, my play, The Fork, had about, um, I think about two weeks of rehearsal. Um, first, we chose the director, who is Andrew Grosso for my play, and then um, the actors, and I have Marsha Jean Kurtz and Don McGee and Kayola Simpson, who are all-stars. And uh, then we started rehearsal, and it's um, it goes pretty quick. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, tech, dress, and they all look, I think, pretty good for, you know, a medium budget. I don't know how much mm -hmm. it is, but, um, yeah, they're all... They well, all maybe, look pretty polished. I'm taking this is a good thing that you don't know how much it is, because this, does this mean that they front everything? There's some festivals in town where they basically give you permission to spend all your money at their festival. Oh, yeah, no, they're fully producing <laughs> out of the theater's budget. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. 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 so that sounds like a great thing. Yeah, You know the festivals I'm talking about, right? That yeah, you like the fringe, yeah. the various fringes. <laughs> so that's yeah. nice that you don't know the budget. That's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, my play was actually a funny situation because I'm a member of Youngblood, the uh, program for playwrights under 30 there, and I wrote my play for um, this monthly uh, brunch event that Youngblood does on the first Sunday of every month, which is five short plays around the theme, and we serve brunch food and mimosas and Bloody Marys. So I wrote this play for our April brunch, which was immigration-themed, and so it was done just like one-off really quick, um, and it's a very fun social event, but then it ended up being the marathon, and so... We kept the same cast, Eli Gelb and, and um, Lucy DeVito, and um, we had to get a new director because our director from the brunch, Lindsay Furman, is already directing a play, another play in the marathon, um, but Colette Roberts, our director. So we had already done it, and then we had like 12 and a half hours of rehearsal time mm -hmm. to look at it again and say, okay, so what now? How do we deepen this or 
you know, uh, go to the next level with it. All right. And now. Yeah. I, um, again, had a, about two and a half weeks. Actually, I had about two and a half weeks of, of rehearsal. And <clears throat> we had to go. It was a little bit unusual. I have both Spanish and English in my play. And it was really important for me to have, um, you know, Latina actresses because mm-hmm. I'm Cuban-American and it's very much about, you know, a Cuban family, which is me and my sisters. So uh, we had to go outside the company a little because we don't have a whole lot of Latinas in it. But that's part of the reason they wanted. Mm-hmm. Or I think it's part of the reason it got chosen because, again, you know, it shows uh, a bit more outside the normal EST box. So um, I have um, J- Jamie Resinor and Cristina Nieves and Laura Riveros, and none of them are members, but they all came and we knew their work or didn't know their work and, you know, just blew us away. But the production values, they're fully realized, but there's something to be said for the simple approach to yeah. producing because then the, the scripts themselves really sing and really it's, it's, the sets are, are lovely in there, but they are minimal, mm-hmm. and the actors just make up for the rest. I love having things be minimal. Oh, I, I do too. I personally prefer plays. I, 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 my personal thought is that theater in no way is any more the realm of realistic. Film and television have taken that, and I'm like, I'm, I, I try to look for things to write or look for other people to write things that can show me Something that movies and TV can't. Yeah, I think um, all theater should be kind of a truthful metaphor yeah. for, you know, the whole picture you're trying to paint. So what what inspires you guys about playwriting? What what drove each of you to the form? Um, well, I grew up in New Jersey, uh, pretty close to New York City, and had two parents who very fortunately took me into the city to see theater a lot. So I fell in love with it. Um, and I always knew that I wanted to write, but I didn't know that I wanted to write plays. And then there was like a high school playwriting festival that I did. And I guess just that first experience at 16 of seeing, of working with actors and a director and seeing something of mine staged in front of an audience was so exhilarating that I was pretty much hooked from then on. And I studied playwriting at NYU and I've been hustling ever mm-hmm. since. Um, yeah, but I pretty much fell in love with it from that first uh, experience. Yeah. I was an actor first and foremost, although I did write my first musical in second grade. Um, <laughs> yeah, with my friend San and her doll, Myrtle. Myrtle, Myrtle stole the show. She was life-size. Um, but very much came to writing late. I'm a founding member of Labyrinth Theater Company, and we uh, decided the ladies needed a writing group that was just for us, like um, in early... A while ago. Yeah. And uh, that led to me starting to tell stories in the form I'd always practiced as an actor and coming from a very dramatic family. Mm-hmm. Nobody <laughs> practiced theater, but they're like, she's acting? I'm like, really? Really? Like, it's that far? From... <laughs> so, but EST was the first production I ever had. So it's in my bones. <laughs> and Emily? Um, I also started, like Carrie, I started when I was um, 
pretty young. I loved writing. And then I went to this great artsy school called St. Anne's in Brooklyn. And I had this amazing playwriting teacher, Nancy Fails Garrett, who's retiring tomorrow, actually, at the age of 80. Um, and uh, anyway, so I did it all through high school. And then at Northwestern, I did it as well. And then I got right into Youngblood out when I graduated Northwestern. So I feel like I was kind of raised by Youngblood as an adult playwright. And um, there was so much support in that group. They have uh, weekly meetings and readings in the spring and these brunches and retreats where you're really, you kind of get this amazing um, supportive and fun base while you kind of weather the storm of being a playwright in real life and outside of school. So that's how I got my start and why I'm still going. Yeah, I mean, when you're in your 20s and you're a playwright, it's so uh, hard to convince yourself that that's really who you are or who you can be. Um, it seems like you're the only person who believes it, you know? <laughs> um, but then when you're in Youngblood, it's it, it's a community that takes you, I mean, the theater at EST takes you very seriously, and they're cultivating your work, and they, they've produced lots of Youngblood writers' work on the main stage there. Um, and... It really makes it gives you a, a home and makes you feel like a real writer. It's it's such a confidence builder. Yeah, you know it's interesting coming at it as an actor first because I the, most of the plays I worked on were original plays, original scripts. So it's it's coming at it as you know as the soldier as opposed <laughs> to the I don't know what the <laughs> army metaphor would be the person who's planning the tactics you know yeah. putting down the script. Um, but even with as a target an, dummy, oh, sometimes I feel like with <laughs> a target dummy. There you, go. there you go. But even as somebody who's not in her twenties, <laughs> but uh, in in the trenches still, the level at which they give you support at EST is is um, it's really singular, and I think it's actually happening more. I think because. People are coming out of the Young Bloods program. I think they're going to be spreading that kind of sensibility all around. The one where, that where you're very familiar with the writing process, where there's incredible belief in you, even when you don't have it. Where even when I was developing a play that I had there produced a couple of years ago, Winners, I was up at Writer Farm, where it's a farm where everybody goes to help develop the play. Um, they forced me to go swim. They were like, you are not working anymore. I'm like, yes, I do. I have that one scene. i got to write that one scene. <laughs> They're like, no, you are going swimming. You are going swimming. And you are going to have a beer. And you're not going to touch that scene. Or, you know, um, that's the kind of understanding they have. The fun thing also about the Ensemble Studio Theater is that I have a million friends from there. I found my husband through the Ensemble Studio Theater. <laughs> it was really convenient, you know, one-stop shopping. Is it swipe uh, left, swipe <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> before, before the time of swiping. Um, but they also, it's incredibly social, and we often have, like, dance parties after the closing of a show. And it's just a place not only to get your work done, but to have your friends um, come and see your work and support you and have a beer or, you know, a water with you. Um, and I think that's what makes it special. And also, when I was finding a director for my marathon piece, I was on the phone with Billy, the art Billy Cardin, the artistic director of the theater, almost every day. And I couldn't believe he had that time to give me to, you know, find a director and there were other pieces. Mm -hmm. So, and the same thing with um, R.J. Tolan and Graham Gillis, who are the artistic directors of Youngblood, they just, it's amazing the time and energy they give you, much more than you think anyone could have. 
So how much are you guys, how do you guys decide what to, where to submit your plays? I mean, there's often many, many, many categories and contests and companies and stuff taking submissions. How, how often are you guys submitting? How do you decide where, uh, where, where's worth your time? Um, I feel like I'm submitting constantly to things, um, most of which go nowhere, but mm -hmm. doing it anyway. Um, <laughs> and uh, I don't know, there's like some good websites that, where people like compile listings. There's also a playwright, Oren Squire, who sends out a monthly email listing that's like fantastic where he like um compiles like the best opportunities each month um which i think all you have to do is like email him and he just adds you to it so that's that's actually super helpful too um but yeah just searching yeah i mean it always helps when you have a connection somewhere like i'll submit to you know where if i've like had a drink with the artistic director of somewhere that so they yeah. know they can put your face with your play a little bit that helps I have to be better about submitting. Yeah, I am. Um, it's much less here. fun than writing the play. Yeah, it can become like a second. <laughs> yeah, the business job. of submitting your stuff is really not very fun at all. Um, and you hope your agent can help you with it, but sometimes it's like your agent, I think, sometimes can't do that much until you had something that was like a little hot to begin yeah. with. So, yeah, it's a mystery. <laughs> you just have to throw your hat in the ring of the abyss. Sometimes. Well, <laughs> but that's why being able to establish a relationship with a theater like EST is so valuable because um, then you know that if you produce something good uh, and they see it, there's a decent chance that they might want to help you develop it. And, you know, not necessarily produce it fully, but um, it's definitely a different feeling than just not being attached anywhere. You know, it makes a tremendous difference. Now, does EST do full productions as well as the one act? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, including Hand to God, which went to Broadway. And yeah, yeah. Um, they do beautiful Sloan productions that are science-based. They just did a production this spring called Spill that was about the BP oil spill. Um, that was part of the Sloan project. Yeah, and Photograph 51 by Anna Ziegler, which had Nicole Kidman in it when it went to London. So they do they do some great stuff. Yeah. So what are your next steps? What are your plans for the, your seeds that you're planting for your, your next steps in your playwriting careers? Um, I am writing a new play kind of about um, the uh, full length, about like the year 2051 and what politics looks like and, you know, if Zika has taken over the U.S. Mm -hmm. and um, <laughs> the divide between families and single people and who gets the privilege in the future. Um, and I hope to have that read in the member fest at EST or somewhere, maybe in the fall. And uh, Maggie? Well, uh, I've been commissioned to write a play for uh, a community college in, uh, in Manhattan and uh, that should be interesting. I met with the students and a lot of them were very, con very fearful of the current political climate and a lot of them are, um, they're here on visas. Mm. So I don't yet know what play that will be but that seemed to be the recurring theme and they really want it to be built for them. 
So that will be the focus, which I think I have to have a rough draft by August. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a reading coming up in um, Youngblood's uh, annual Bloodworks reading series, which happens every spring uh, at the end of the month. Um, and I was going to do something else for it, but I was so um, taken with this marathon experience that I'm writing sort of as my marathon plays set in Poland in the 30s. It's about my grandparents meeting as uh, as Jews there. And so I'm writing a sort of sequel that's set in Hoboken, New Jersey in the 1950s um, with the same cast uh, who were in the marathon play. So, yeah, I'm trying to write a first act of that really, really quickly. Well, I thank you so much for coming in, and I wish you best of luck with your plays at the 36th Annual Festival of Short Plays at One X Festival. The Marathon. Marathon of One X. And with (laughs) everything else you write and and stuff going forward, it's been a pleasure. Um, And, uh, yeah, best of luck. Thank Thank you. Thank you so much. Break legs to you, too. (laughs) Breaking the business. The Lazur Brothers. (laughs) That sounds so like already like we should know who you are. <laughs> the Lazur brothers, Daniel and Patrick Lazur, are musical theater writers, correct? Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, I did remember that much uh, from your website, which is well put together. Thank you. And uh, they've got a lot of things going on. They've been exploring and promoting and getting their work out there. And now they're here in the studio to talk about everything that they're working on. Uh, how are you guys yeah, doing? Very well. Good. Thanks for having yeah. us here. We're very you want to each introduce yourself? Your voices are close, so... It's true, yeah. <laughs> I'm Daniel Lazor, the uh, composer and co-librettist of the, the arrangement here. Mm-hmm. And I'm the lyricist and co-librettist. Patrick. Um, and Patrick, yeah, Patrick. His That's name, my name. Yeah. Um, and we work pretty much together on all of our projects uh, as of now. And you're actually brothers. We yeah, are indeed. Yeah, yeah, it's not yeah. just a vaudeville Who's older? Yeah. name. Um, who do you think is older? I really can't tell. Really? You, most mean, people say Daniel Daniel is older because of his demeanor. Yes, yeah. 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 by air of yeah. maturity. Yeah. No, I'm <laughs> no um, but I'm actually older by three years. And okay, then, and I, I wouldn't have thought there was right? that mm-hmm. much difference. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's my so. youthful air. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really couldn't tell which one was older, and you look very close to the same age. So how is it working with your brother? I mean, yeah, I mean, we've been at it for, for quite a while now. We, I, I started. Well, I guess the Gershwins did it. Yeah, yeah. yeah right, right. So there's a little precedence, I guess. Um, so, yeah, I started when I was 12. Patrick what, was like 15 like, or something. Yeah, 15 or 16. And we did this high school uh, theater competition at Tahanta. Both We both went to, I mean, you were in. Right, I was in middle school middle at Tahanta Regional High School in Massachusetts, where we're both from, yeah. just down the road. And Patrick was not in high school, uh, not in high school at the same school, but his classmates at Tahanto remembered that he liked to write theater. So they yeah. asked him, they sort of recruited him, hey, would you like to write a show? And then and, I asked Daniel to write the music because he was an inspi- aspiring. Uh, right. Yeah, and the big, the big um, hubbub was one, Patrick wasn't at the school anymore. And two, it was a musical. So both of those things got us disqualified from the, the straight play competition. Yeah, yeah. So, it, yeah, it caused quite a controversy in the town of Boylston, Massachusetts. <laughs> <laughs> Started with a bang. Yeah, but it was fun. It was fun. Everyone seemed to really like it. So, um, But we couldn't, yeah, we weren't judged or anything. But it seems like we, we the, the, the crowd enjoyed it. So we continued. We wrote our first full 
musical the a year after. And what was really great is there's a little um, theater in our town called Calliope Theater, and they agreed to put our musicals on every summer from then on, from then on in perpetuity, sort of. So <laughs> not in the next three years. Yeah, for the next three years. I don't know if we could just We're roll still into doing town. Yeah. No, no, um, no. But uh, we uh, we did our first full length musical uh, there uh, in my the summer of my freshman year, going into my freshman year at Boston College, and then from there we did three. Yeah, we did three musicals. Uh, and then I did one at uh, at Boston College. It was the same. I, it was it was called the Grand Room. Um, and then now we're working on our new show, We Live in Cairo, about the Egyptian Revolution in 2011. So, so we've been yeah we've been we've been at it at it for a little while. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What was really nice actually about about when we were younger is that since we had this little slot at this theater, we. Um, we got to uh, to really like work up a show in a year with the sort of the guarantee yeah. of a l- little production, you know. So it was a great learning experience. It felt like uh, it felt like we were in like musical theater writing school. Um, <laughs> and we had this great uh, this great director who um, who approached us and and uh, and asked if he could come on board um, and help us. Uh, the his his name is Eric Butler. He's very talented. Um, and, uh, and we worked with him for those three years and we learned quite a bit about uh, not only writing musicals, but also, uh, working with actors and, you know, which is, which is well, an art form detailed. in and of itself. Yeah, right. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and getting things done on, done on a deadline, yeah. I think, which yeah. is, which is important. Totally. And, and learning how to get through the, you know, the year without some blowout fight that would then halt the project. Totally. You know, yeah. Or anything. The... I mean, not even a blowout fight, but just yeah, any, anything, anything that sort the, of yeah, any right. obstacle that comes in the way. But, you know, it was um, it was great in one sense, um, but maybe over idealistic because uh, because when we came to New York, we realized that musicals were not, in fact, could not, in fact, be done in a in a year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Year. There was no guarantee. Uh, I have a yeah. similar story in my, through my college. I'm, so I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you go. I mean, you you uh, you have these, especially in college. You know, you uh, you have people around you. You know, really gung ho and supporting you and loving theater and all of that mm-hmm. stuff. And then you come into the big city, and it's it's like college, but like a hundred times bigger, thousand times bigger. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have to get your footing, I think, um, and it takes a lot longer. Uh, but 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 in the development process, I think in the development process of uh, of, of developing a musical in the city, um, there are a lot of like there are a lot of positives to that. I think, despite the fact that you might not be getting a full production in like a year or whatever. Well, you know, Pete Mills with uh, Honeymooners. I think he's with yeah. Honeymooners at, at his. Of course, he founded a theater to do it, but he was putting up practically a musical every single year that he wrote. Wow, oh, really? Wow. In New York, yeah. Can you believe that? Yeah, <laughs> no. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Just to give you guys that thing, <laughs> no. it can be done. Yeah, you can no. do it again. Exactly. Yeah, right, right. Right. Just to depress us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's great, though. Yeah, so, um, so, yeah, it's, but I, I think um, that education in our youth really helped us uh, really helped us in like the the three or four years we've been in New York, New York City. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. so how have you navigated your career in New York? What what things have you been doing to try to you know get recognized, get connected, find the people you want to work with? Yeah, sure. Yeah. What, what have your 
What's worked well, for you? Well, I think the first, thing, the first thing that we did was join the Dramatist Guild, which is sort of an immediate connector mm-hmm. um, to a lot of people. I mean, you, you know, you can inquire about being connected with someone else in the guild, and chances are they'll put you in touch. And um, from there, yeah, it's just setting up meetings and just sitting down for coffee. and um, That's actually a big thing. Yeah. And it's funny, even this week we were saying, like, we need to do, we need to remember, like, when we first moved to New York, we were so um, intent on setting up a bunch of meetings with different people and just sitting down and talking about their experience. And now, um, just, in, just the, since things have just gotten so busy, um, we haven't done as much, mm-hmm. but we were just reminding ourselves that it's such an important thing, like networking. Yeah. Or not because to think about it as networking, but yeah. But it's like people. sort of a win-win because it, it, it does have that element of, Business. Of networking yeah. and business, but it's also uh, the the people in the city, and and this is not this is not uh, uh, painting a, a pretty picture at all. It's the truth. The um the people are super. The the theater community is so uh, um supportive and accessible to mm-hmm. to up and coming well, theater will, artists, willing to and give willing, advice, yeah. which I think is a big thing. Yeah. So it's not only do you have that. Um, these connectors, but but you're also they're also educators in so many ways. These people that you sit down with, and they're they're eager to teach you about not only the community and and how to how to get your show out there, but also just kind of about the art form. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I think something we we tr- we tried to um, really think about was like you know you never know who's gonna um, take an interest or. Who might know somebody, or so? Yeah. I think making sure not to not to like overthink this thing of like, oh, who should we sit down with? Like, as long as you're, I think, working to build a community of just a lot of different types of people and like and like-minded people as well, then you know something something's got to give here and there, yeah. and slowly, but it, it does give. So I think like I was reading either like Tennessee Williams' mem, I think it was Tennessee Williams' memoir, and he was saying something like. When you know that you are lucky when you know it doesn't matter the age, mm-hmm. but know that you are lucky when you become a success, you know, but in the yeah. meantime, enjoy the things that are leading up to that. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, it's like whoever mm-hmm. if you're a success in your art form, that's like a that's a blessing. And um, so so it, it, it would just be a waste to not to not see the things, you know, see the path and see the journey. Um, and not enjoy that, and not see that there are people out there that are uh, that are looking for your best interests and looking f- to get your to, who are actually passionate about your work. Mm-hmm. That's that's something that was very surprising to us. I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah. People like there are people who are uh, who are established in the field that are just passionate about young people's work, and they want to see it succeed. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the meantime, they're they're there to give you advice and give you um, give you support. And so, so that's, I think that's, that's definitely one thing, but then, um, I think we compounded that with the applying, like there's all, there are all these, um, these opportunities to apply. Oh yeah. To just send out, yeah. send out a bunch of applications. Yeah. You, you know. So what is We Live in Cairo? Um, so it's, uh, it's based in both 2011 and 2014 in Cairo, Egypt. Uh, it's about the the youth movement during the 2011 Egyptian Revolution and all that happens after. Uh, so the 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 youth movement was called the April Sixth Youth Movement, and so it follows uh, six uh, Kyrenes, uh, Egyptian characters, uh, as they um, 
well, first, as they plan uh, um, a revolution, uh, they they were really, I what sixteen to twenty five mm, yeah. when they yeah when they really um, orchestrated this this entire uh, entire revolution in Tahrir Square, and uh, and then uh, so the the story starts there in in Tahrir Square in two thousand eleven, and then it goes to um, it follows them to two thousand fourteen. Um, and it sort of uh, deals with their disillusionment at the revolution's failure and uh, and finding themselves amidst the uh, the new government that that comes into power in 2014. So uh, so it's quite a long uh, a long journey the the narrative. But um, but it's actually as of now it's 90 minutes. It's a 90 minute <laughs> musical. Um, and it goes back and forth between the two times. Um, and, and just recently yeah. um, we were awarded the Richard Rogers Award. And we Congratulations. Thank yeah. you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And we developed it um, with support from that at New York Theater Workshop in a two-week reading. And we're headed to um, their residency at Adelphi University with our director, Tavi Magar. So, so that's We Live in Cairo, pretty much. Um, the music, cue demo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we... Um, so I guess the so we can talk about the first song, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Now um, that it's yeah, it's the opening number. It's um, you know, it's a protest song that we wrote to um, to try and encapsulate the the idealism and um and and hope of these youth revolutionaries, um, inspired by a lot of the music we were listening to from the square, from Tahrir Square, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's. I think as as maybe um, you can hear, it's like a, a sort of a blend or tries to be of um, Western pop rock and and um, you know more Middle Eastern sounds as you know as as that the music of the of of the revolution really was. Um, it's very interesting. The youth, um, the, the the youth in uh, in Egypt are there's there's that interest in you know, the, the Pixies and, um, you know, and like Metallica and, well, and Rage Against Western music. It's, it's all, all over. over. It's, it's all permeates. over. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so there's that interest, but then there's like a, a, a very strong, um, uh, uh, fidelity to the, to the, the traditional, tradition, mm-hmm. traditional Arabic music. Um, something that we don't re- I don't think we really have. Yeah. Yeah, we were talking about how it's just like the folk, American folk music. Yeah. It's like totally dissipating. Yeah. It's a shame. I mean, well, it's we're now. New, we're still in the scheme of things. We're new here. It's very true. So true. Yeah, we don't know what, what music's going to last, I guess. <coughs> or stick. Yeah, yeah what's going to be our national. I mean, sort of. us as Americans have been little magpies stealing from every other culture. Anyway, totally. I, I don't think that's who we are. I don't think that's yeah. something to be embarrassed of. No. We have been. We've been magpies. Yeah, from yeah. Sure. sure. Totally. I wonder what that will create. <laughs> In, as in the years to come, yeah, um, yeah what will be American, you yeah, know, American yeah. music right. in like five hundred years, right, if we're right. still here? <laughs> but but that's a really good point. Um, I think there's just such a rich history um, in Egypt, and they and w- what what we what we came to realize was that the the youth revolutionaries took from that history and and took from the history of revolution and of protest. Um, and um, and really made it their own, made it the, made it very very uh, 2011 or two you know um, uh, 21st century. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, so that's what we try to capture in the show, and I think we have a we have a, a bit a 
a bit to go, uh, mm-hmm. and um, but but we're getting there, and it and a lot actually has to do with the instrumentation and and the um, the sound that Jeremy brings, and the yeah, sound yeah. that um, the Arabic musicians um, uh, in our on our team bring to the project. So yeah, creating a sound sort of a, a sound world for um, you know for the show that's maybe a little different uh, from. You know, just from what we hear, just just maybe trying to push our um, push our hearing a little bit. Sometimes, like you know, the the first you know year really diving in um, to to Arabic music. I mean, it, it it to to learn how to sing the the quarter tone. You know, we we're yeah. Lebanese. We grew up with with Arabic music to an extent. Um, but you know, when you re- when it really gets down to it, to 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 sit down and try and you know, sing some of these lines, it's like, well, wait, uh, you know, when you grow up and you learn music in the West, it's a, you know, you, it's a whole different system. And you know, seeing what we can, um, we, where, where there are similarities, where there are differences. And, um, and, and I think, and, and the reason I think we're really harping on the percussion, <laughs> no pun intended, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> is because the percussive elements of Arabic music is yeah. like what really is, is something that, you know, we were talking about we were just shocked that it hasn't taken hold over here even like it's crazy just some of these rhythms that are like such dance rhythms and um you know such club you know just this like just club you, rhythms you totally and, feel it yeah you totally feel it so hopefully you know really packing a punch rhythmically and um and vocally too you know pushing the 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 vocal technique of some of the singers you're you know. building up our listeners expectations I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah then you're gonna play it it's gonna be like yeah. well, you're ready, to take, a, ready to take a listen to the first one <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the first one um yeah we can just certainly take a listen to that and then I'm a son of born into hope into heat into thousands of voices i'm a son of out in the crowd on the street Our pain, our pride, our choices We were chanting Horia, Horia We were singing for days Whoa When our country screamed And my country was screaming Taught it is now And now is here We'll wait and hour, a day, a month, a year, we have cracked the wall of fear, and we'll see it crumble. And the air was our own, sleeping in tents in the night heart of the sea, and the light was our own, waiting for morning to fight against the worst of it, imagine chanting, Korea, Korea, imagine singing for days, whoa, and our country screamed, and my country was screaming, taught it is now. And now is here, we'll wait an hour, a day, a month, a year. We have cracked the wall of fear, and we'll see it crumble. 
Before we uh, kind of sign off, you want to you want to play? We share one more song from "We Live in Cairo." Sure, yeah. we certainly can. Which one what, do you want to? What do you want to play? Um, wall song. Yeah, maybe wall song. Yeah. Um, so this song coming up is um, is performed by a character uh, who is a graffiti artist. His name is Kareem, and he uh, he's out on the streets. He's he's um, painting a mural. Uh, right before the revolution begins on January 25th. Um, and the song's sort of just about his his passion. It, the The show, actually, I should mention, the show is about six artists, six revolutionary artists, and his uh, his sort of art form is the... Uh, street art. Street art. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> street art. Uh, so so this is, this is um, him sort of paying homage to, um, to his art. I've been here waiting for you to do the thing that you do. I see the colors on all the others. Oh, won't you color me too? And though I might be a wall, just know I'm one of you all. I want to chant things, I want to sing things, I want to bring things back to attack. I need you more than you know, you know I know where to go, so give me life, give me your light, I want to see the fight.
Daniel and Patrick, uh, do we do you know what the next steps are for We Live in Cairo at this point, or what you're hoping for? Or? Broadway, hoping to, yeah, Broadway. <laughs> yeah. We should open on Broadway in the fall. Yeah. Uh, thinking, you know, I, hopefully there's some uh, some interest um, to to bring it to to a production at some point when we're ready. You know, we we uh, it's it's tough to know. You know, it's tough to know what comes next and until it's there's funny. It's like it, it sort of goes along until it. You know, until it sort of snowballs into into something. You guys work um, multiple projects at once, or do you like? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah we're just know. beginning this other project, um, <clears throat> Bethesda, but but that's sort of yeah, in its yeah. nascent stages. Yeah, yeah, yeah but we kind but of the, juggle between the two. But as I was saying, I mean, it's you know, we need to remember that it's this show. We live in Cairo, even though it feels like we've been at it forever. It's so new to so many people. So we're trying to keep banging that drum until it's uh, can't be banged anymore. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> All right. Well, good luck yeah, and going you. on. Congratulations on all your recent successes and thank workshops, you very much. and wish you the best with Bethesda and We Live in Cairo and and the next thing you don't even know you're writing. Yeah. Yes. Well, thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you for having us. We appreciate it. Curtain call. Well, that pretty much wraps up another great episode. Our uh, next episode is going to be. In two weeks, on the 26th of September, we got some great people lined up. We have got Max Vernon, who talks a lot about his uh, successful off-Broadway show, The View Upstairs, which I believe is either just opened or is opening in Los Angeles, and the cast album is out. He'll be talking a lot about that, and his exciting new kind of installation musical that's opening up any time, I believe, in New York. We have also got Kinky Boots, the replacement, Jay Harrison Gee, talks about taking over Lola, and a uh, real fun guy. And Gabriella Stravelli is talks about uh, her album and uh, making her way as a very different type of cabaret singer. So until then, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, Broadway Bullet. Again, I want to give a special thanks, a shout out to the Dramatist Guild Fund for use of their fantastic space. Uh, they offer a lot of great services for uh, playwrights and artists in and out of New York. Also, special thanks to the University of Providence, uh, the program I created, Theater and Business Arts. Uh, make the most of your career. Love to hear from you guys. And uh, anybody else who I may be forgetting. Uh, thank you guys. Spread the word. Tell your theater fans about this podcast. And we'll see you back on The Bullet in two weeks. Thank you.